Welcome to State of Mind. This is Julian Royce. I have a wonderful conversation and episode today for everyone. It's uh, actually really informative. Um, but before I get to that, just a few updates. I have a new website, astateofmindpodcast.com. If you go to the old website, astateofmindplay.com, you will automatically be taken to the new one. And uh, we've got an updated logo, some new artwork, and I'm going to be adding an online store there soon to make it easier to order things like t-shirts. We've got a few different designs that I'm excited about. Um, you can also order coffee cups, things like that, with our logo. Um, it's a great way to support the podcast. Uh, another wonderful way to support this podcast is just sharing it with friends, sharing about it on your own social media accounts. That makes a big difference. And of course, um, if you've been appreciating this, please consider going to patreon.com backslash state of mind. Um, you can make a donation there and it really helps, it helps out a lot. And as always, um, you can send messages and questions through our website. Uh, I love hearing from everyone, so please do that. If something moves you, let me know. If you have any questions, again, let me know. So today I'm speaking with Hillary Morris. Hillary is a fellow psychotherapist who specializes in helping people recover from traumatic injuries, just healing trauma in general. And we talk in our conversation about physical trauma, like a concussion or a brain injury, um, or being in a car accident, and also the emotional or psychological trauma, and how those two often go together and how there's a physiological component to each, of course. So it's not like one is purely mental and the other physical, though it can seem that way at times. Um, Hillary also teaches and coaches women to be entrepreneurs, to run their own businesses. It's something she's really passionate about. Um, she shares about that. And she talks about pleasure and the importance of allowing yourself to feel pleasure and ways to do that and ways in which we tend to block that. And then towards the end of our conversation, she shares about her work with ketamine and ketamine-assisted therapy, which is a type of psychedelic-assisted therapy that is legal and safe. And I really think that this is one of the clearest, most concise uh, discussions of ketamine-assisted therapy that I've had on the podcast thus far. So if you're interested in psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy, please check that part out. I thought it was really good. And without further ado, I bring you Hillary Morris. today with Hillary Morris. Hillary, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hi, Julian. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. And we both know Craig Salerno in common, who was on the podcast earlier this year. Yes, Craig is great, great colleague and does some great work in the ketamine and addiction space. Yeah, yeah, really talented psychotherapist and good with addictions and all that. Um, do you want to share a little bit about yourself and what you're up to? Yes. So I am a therapist and I'm also the founder of my own private practice. And we actually have three therapists and a psychologist. And um, so we, we've got a group practice and we have two locations, one in Lakewood. And then we just added a second location in um, Inglewood. Mm -hmm. And so what, what we really specialize in is uh trauma. We do trauma and anxiety and a little bit of depression. And one of our subspecialties is assisting with either accident or injury related trauma. So it's usually a single event trauma. Um, 
a car accident, a fall, some sort of injury. And we help give clients tools and teach them new things to help manage those traumas and regulate their emotions and really get back to their lives and help improve overall functioning. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Would that that include often like physical accidents? mm -hmm, Physical accidents too. Absolutely. Uh, Bike crashes, car crashes, um, concussion. So football injuries, we work a lot with concussion and um, traumatic brain injury. That's one of our specialties as well. Um, And knowing that the, when the brain becomes injured, so in the event of a concussion, that actually impacts physiology, neurophysiology. And oftentimes you get a common symptom profile of heightened anxiety, depression, PTSD, because the, the cells that help regulate emotions have been injured or impacted during that concussion event. So that's what we specialize in, just educating clients on what is a brain injury, what is normal, how to manage it. We work with their families a lot too, and really empower our clients to take their recovery into their hands and teach them new things, give them new ways of thinking, help them access new resources. And it really, really helps them to get back on their feet and just learn a new perspective. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's needed work. I, I just was talking to someone last week who whose partner um, was in a car accident that wasn't their fault at all. And they had a concussion that wasn't that bad, but now they have post-concussion syndrome. And so yes. I'm kind of learning about that for the first time, but it can, the doctor, you know, she was, she was told it could take over, up to a year to feel mm-hmm. normal again. And, and then yes. some, some people are kind of in her family have doubted that it's real, you know, so she's dealing with that kind of thing. And um, cause there's nothing physically wrong according to the doctors, but it's, a lot of uh, negative symptoms just from dealing with it afterwards and like readjusting. You probably know more about that than I do. Yes. Well, the thing is, and that's why they call, sometimes they call traumatic brain injuries an invisible disability or an invisible injury, because if you break your arm or your leg, you have a cast or there's some sort of visual uh, presentation to where others can see the injury. But with brain injury, sometimes um, it's more of a mild traumatic brain injury and the, the injury doesn't appear on an MRI or a CT scan. Um, and it can be really challenging because the symptoms are real to the, the individuals and it can be difficult for non-medical people or non-concussion specialists or family and friends to understand and the, the concussion industry, it, it's kind of a, a niche industry that requires training because of that reason, because it's very kind of misunderstood. And there are certain specialists and specialty doctors. And usually um, a lot of our clients have a neurologist who's diagnosed the concussion and then the neurologist will recommend yeah. um, psychotherapy. Um, but it's just, it can be really difficult and it can be invalidating sometimes and people can feel unseen and unheard and alone in their, in their struggle. And so they find that it is helpful to talk about those struggles in a safe place and learn that, um, there are individuals that can help and it can be frustrating and the, the treatment or the time it takes to feel better, it, it can vary. I mean, it can vary. And it, it's 
based on multiple factors. I think age, the type of head trauma, loss of consciousness, um, pre-existing conditions, genetic variability, all those go into um, the recovery process. Obviously, a concussion then is more serious maybe than people give it credit for potentially. Mm-hmm. And things like you mentioned football. Um, imagine like, you know, just even like kids, if they got in a kind of fight or scuffle and any kind of thing that could potentially cause a concussion or damage to our brain is, is potentially really serious, right? What, what are some mm-hmm. of the symptoms and effects afterwards that you notice? So the most common symptoms of concussion, and and it kind of depends, you can actually go into a lot of detail because it depends how the the brain was concussed because there could be a different symptom profile if there is what's called a coup contra coup. So if there's a back and forth versus the side to side um, because different regions of the brain are impacted. But I think the most common symptoms would include cognitive dysfunction or cognitive fatigue. So feeling just foggy. Really? Difficulty with executive function, um, memory loss is a really common one. So people just forgetting to do everyday tasks, hmm. um, loss of language or difficulty with speech articulation. So uh, word finding challenges, forgetting words, um, difficulty with abstract thinking. Um, sometimes uh, if, if the ocular region of the brain was impacted, uh, visual disturbances are common. Wow. Light sensitivity. Yes. Light sensitivity and difficulty uh, looking at screens. So like a computer or a phone. Um, And then there's a typical um, emotional symptom profile, too, Hmm. Um, because when the frontal lobe becomes injured and the frontal lobe being a um, suppressant for emotional dysregulation, Um, it can amplify emotional responses. So we tend to see a lot of depression, anxiety, hypervigilance, panic, paranoia, and sometimes suicidality too, depending on the severity of that. But those are usually the most common, the most common symptoms we see with concussion. That's wild. Yeah. You just listed so many things. I mean, any one of which would be, you know, a real challenge that makes, yeah, it makes sense that psychotherapy would be recommended then to help and um, it's interesting. I mean, my other thing I was going to ask you about this um, was just this, you know, we can think about trauma in terms of physical trauma. And I think that's, like you said, easier to understand if you have a cast on your leg or if you're in, you know, a ski accident. There's been physical trauma to the body and then more emotional or developmental trauma. Um, I mean, now there's a lot of people are very aware that that's a reality and that people, <laughs> you know, need help for that. And and that's where psychotherapy and like EMDR, you know, modalities like that can help so much. Um, yes. Do you want to speak to that, that you know, that physical versus, would you call it more emotional or psychological trauma? And there's, I mean, there's yes. a lot of connections there. They're not, it's not a clear line one to the other, right? Because there are physiological changes in our nervous system when you have been, you know, in an abusive relationship, for example, if you grew up in an abusive environment. So... Well, yes. And that's actually a common, a common complaint of people that come into our office after a car accident. They'll say, Hey, I was in this car accident. My body's fine. I'm okay. I didn't have any major injuries. And sometimes people don't even have a concussion. They'll just have a car accident. And then all of a sudden develop symptoms of panic 
Mm. or post-traumatic stress or anxiety. And the reason is that um, trauma remains in in the body, emotional trauma. And with one of those incidents, so with a, a, a car accident or in an abusive relationship or some sort of trauma, how we explain it to patients is we have a threshold, an emotional threshold that our emotions allow us to experience in the day-to-day realm. And we might have some days that are great and we're feeling good and some days are a little bit bad. But for the most part, we have this um, this euthymia is kind of what we call it. We stay, we just stay in this good little area. And then what happens with the emotional trauma, uh, emotionally traumatic event is our, that threshold, um, we exceed that threshold of what we normally can handle because of the heightened emotions. We have a, a cascade of these stress hormones. Um, in some incidents, the accident mimics death. And so while we don't die, the brain thinks we're about to die. And so our nervous system, our um, limbic system, which is um, neurochemically where we experience emotional trauma, uh, we it exceeds what we normally have capacity for. And the body remembers that. It's almost like it cements that traumatic incident and then everything surrounding that incident, thoughts, feelings, um, behaviors, even evocative cues that are reminiscent of the event. So if it's a car accident, if it's like a a traffic light or a certain type of car, the body remembers those things um, until we train it to not, or until we desensitize that. And so I think that, yes, there can be physical injuries present. And also because of the, the magnitude emotionally of that traumatic event, it kind of remains in the body and it gets absorbed in the body. And so our approach, we use a combination of many different modalities, depending on what the patient presents. But we we do the cognitive behavioral approaches. We do the um, desensitization approaches and the exposure therapy approaches. Uh, But we also do a lot of somatic approaches, too, because for for clients that can handle that. Um, So to just get them really in touch with how their body is experiencing that trauma. And a lot of times that comes with connecting. So connecting with what they're feeling in the moment, the panic, the anxiety, the paranoia, and staying with it. We teach this concept of pause, try to learn to pause and stay versus getting lifted into this almost tornado of anxiety and panic and flashback. And it kind of lifts you from the body. So we really teach to try and stay with it, with the, uh, with all sorts of approaches and we do use EMDR as well, but just to allow that, um, allow the body to compensate and to kind of uh, desensitize and to allow the, the trauma to kind of move through the body really gently hmm. and um, have patients kind of get back to functioning before the event happened. That's yeah, that was well said. It's a good description. <laughs> it's we're, we're fortunate that there's so many, therapeutic modalities, you know, types of therapy that can help people. It can also be confusing. Um, would you would you think it, say it's fair to say that cognitive behavioral therapy is operating more at the level of thoughts and like working with our thoughts? Yes. Yes. I think that's that's great. That's a great description. It's sort of like 
cognitive behavioral therapy really uses the frontal lobe and, and focuses on thoughts and how thoughts and feelings and behaviors are connected. Um, and it works for some people and some levels of trauma. And then for other levels of trauma, we sink deeper. And if you think about the brain too, we move from the cortex or the frontal lobe, we move deeper with the somatic therapies and even the exposure therapies and desensitization, we move into the limbic center of the brain and really get to know and process and um, kind of release and resolve traumas on that level. And it's almost like we use this metaphor with our clients, but it's almost, and for some people, we have to learn a new language because we're so equipped with learning um, language of cognition because we use it all the time. And so learning to sink into the body and get acquainted with the body's language through feeling, emotion, somatic sensations and is, is totally different. And so it's really fun to teach people how to kind of turn off uh, the brain and kind of live from the neck down <laughs> and just get to know this, this new language. And we have different exercises for how, how to do that. One of my favorites is... Um, to connect with this part of your body. Uh, what What is this part of your body saying? What does mm. the sensation look like? What does it feel like? Does it have a texture, a color? Does it have words? Is, is there something that needs to be expressed? Um, and just sitting with it, just sitting with whatever's coming up. Yeah, and that can be so challenging because we're most of us are so conditioned to always be doing, 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 going, going, going and to slow down and drop in. And I, I like how you said deeper that accessing our somatic experience, dropping in, it, I think potentially mm-hmm. can be healing on a deeper level. And uh, But to honor both our cognitive processes and all our somatic experience and all of that is important. And Yes, and I think teaching, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think it would be, you know, very fair to say in general, our society tends to live in the head and we're disembodied and we're disconnected from our embodied experience. And there's so much there. And that can be a huge part of, of healing and becoming a more integrated, like holistic um, person. Um, but I, I do occasionally meet some people because I, maybe because I live in Boulder and I've been in the meditative kind of yoga therapy world for so long, who I think are kind of so biased towards the body and that approach that they then maybe need a little bit of more cognitive, like working with your thoughts, thinking logically, um, thinking, seeing things more clearly. So I think it's good that balance and have be able to have all of the, you know, all of that working. <laughs> yes. I think that's great. You said it beautifully to have an integrative approach and to have a balance and to use and learn both. And there are just some, some of us who are um, kind of top heavy and that's just naturally how we work myself included. I'm just kind of analytical and more cognitive. And then it's all about balancing it and learning. Okay. If I take a break from cognitive processing, what is my intuition saying, or what is my body saying? Because so often I think we don't give that enough credit because I, I really do think that, and I, we try, we teach this too, 
I really think that we know if, if people come to us saying like, oh my gosh, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. I think we know just intuitively we know the answer. It's just kind of clearing out all the things that tell us we don't trauma included yeah. and raising awareness to disillusioned beliefs or beliefs that might tell us, oh no, just, you don't know, you can reach out to all these other people and these other methods, but deny yourself. And so it's all about integrating the body, the wisdom of the body with the wisdom of the mind to create this holistic perspective on health and healing. Nice. Yeah. I think we're on the same page there. That's good. Mm-hmm. Well, um, do you want to share a little bit with us about your life and how you came to be so passionate about doing this work? Yes. So I, Gosh, I, I really like people. I've always liked people and I've just been really fascinated with the mind and the psyche and change. So getting into psychology of change and just why certain people and certain conditions do and why certain don't. And so I decided after, um, I think I decided when I was living in Boulder that I wanted to explore psychology as a, as a career and and take that into my, my, my vocation. And then it's interesting because the, the more I got into the more advanced, I got into the field of, of clinical psychology, which does teach evidence, I mean, evidence-based approaches, meaning the cognitive behavioral therapies and, it, it didn't teach as much of the somatic approaches. And I, I started to get fascinated with some of the, the approaches that involved the, the body or like we talked about that one a little bit deeper. And so decided to get trained in more of the um, holistic therapies just to have m- multiple options for, for people because there were, there were people that are great and, and we're, using these cognitive approaches, but getting stuck or only getting to a certain threshold with it. So by adding more therapies, the somatic approaches or the emotional approaches, we can see clients um, healing more quickly or more rapidly um, than just one approach individually. And so, mm. so that's sort of what got me interested in therapy. Just, I, I really like people and I like change and, transformation and then I also realized um the more and more I got into therapy my my desire and passion for um I guess you can call it entrepreneurship or the the kind of the business aspect of having a practice that just came I I don't know I just really liked that and so this path that I'm on it kind of combines the best of both worlds where I can engage with people and help them and also build this, um, build this practice. And that's actually something that, um, just, just because I think that, well, for me, I was just intrigued by how to build a practice and how to build a business. And recently it's interesting because I've kind of built up, up the practice and also kind of attracted into my um, client base in, individuals who are sort of on a similar path. Just, I've, work we work well with um women or or those who identify as women in the entrepreneurial space and um so that became part of my passion too is just Hmm. uh, just assisting or being able to to combine all of these things the therapy approaches somatic approaches alternative approaches 
to assist those who identify as women in this unique path of owning a business or owning a practice while also juggling the role of spouse or partner or mother or yeah. all these things because it is it is a kind of unique place to be. So that sort of led to this other area of growth in me. It was kind of, and I, I realized, I think a couple of years ago, I was like, I think just staying in the therapist role for me, I was just, I was content, but I was, I thought I was made for more. And so that's been interesting, just integrating that and exploring new, new things and integrating that into my work as well. That's great. Yeah. It's inspiring to hear. I think, um, obviously like all the business skills and running a business are separate than the, all the therapeutic skills and a lot right. of us and they don't teach us that. Are, yeah, mm-hmm. trying to do both. Right. And it's so interesting. I wish they would have taught like a business course mm-hmm. in um, like the degree program, but right. they don't. Right. So we kind of just figure it out on our own. Yeah. And has that been your, your approach, like kind of figuring it out as you go along and, and you're now helping other people to, to learn those? Yes. I think that I've learned a lot, um, probably as you have too, uh, just with what works and what doesn't and made a lot of mistakes and done a lot of things that are really helpful and really additive, but then things that I've learned from. And so I think that, yes, I, it's just something I enjoy and I'm, I always try to grow and also get counsel from others too, who um, are a little bit further or further down the line in their practices as well. But it's it's an adventure. I will say that. And it's very unique. I think you probably can relate because you have your business too. It's just a very unique adventure and of being the business owner and also having a, a lifestyle so right yeah and you're I mean is there do you want to speak a little bit are there specific challenges you see with women that women face or differences like you're helping particularly women entrepreneurs to get their businesses going yes well I think um some specific challenges well I think statistically um just based on small business association statistics there are less from a numbers perspective there are less women who own businesses as opposed to men so I think there's just less of us out there so to provide support and kind of band together um, I think can be really helpful um, because it is kind of a non-traditional lifestyle and I think women um it, it can take a lot to run a business. And I, I talk a lot about masculine versus feminine energies within all of us. So masculine meaning more leadership, initiation, productivity, kind of go, go, go. And then feminine being more softness, um, flow, creativity, sensuality, surrender. And I think a lot of women they tend to to have naturally a lot of that masculine energy because it is required to run a business in the day-to-day and to be to have a successful business. And, mm. and the women that I've worked with, they struggle to 
um, augment or balance out that feminine energy because so much of their time and attention and energy and focus is based is is turned to running this business. And so a lot of the work that we do is balancing the two and how can we open up space for the feminine, for energies of softness, of tenderness, of creativity how can you create space for that while also running this business that can be consuming um and so that and that looks different for every for every person and one of the things I like to ask is um, just to think about the last time you lost track of something and did something you truly love um and another thing that I love to to um ask which is really fun is to create a block of time, either a day or an afternoon of no plans. So, which can freak out some people, but you just open up to whatever is coming up in the body um, to, to um, yeah, tend to that. And for some people that can be just doing some, some dance for some people that's t- taking a bath for some people that's just waking up late and watching, um, watching the birds outside for some people it's doing some um some creation whatever that looks like but just to get in touch with the feminine and it looks differently for for each person but I think that it's in the the women I've worked with it's it's a very unique it's just very unique and I think that it can be easy to kind of get stuck in all of the the masculine energy because running a business takes a lot of time and effort. And especially with women who have multiple roles, they can feel disconnected from sources of love, joy, pleasure, purpose. And so it's all about coming back to that and really um, connecting with, okay, what does pleasure feel like? Um, What things can get me to a place where I can have this, where I can feel encouraged and lifted up and, um, refreshed so it's, it's just a lot of it's a, a lot of fun and it's an honor to be able to work in that space and I can relate on so many levels because I also um have a business and a practice and also yeah so I'm I'm learning this firsthand too <laughs> yeah no that's beautiful I like what you said about how we all have masculine feminine energies and mm-hmm. those different qualities and I think um I totally agree. Like having unstructured time, I think it's important and it mm-hmm. can be challenging for people. And I think, you know, myself included, like there's this endless to-do list for better or worse. Honestly, I think it's mostly for the worse, but like our society is like more, there's, you know, things like social media and email and website stuff and marketing. And there's like an endless, you know, number of things that you could be doing. And, um, yeah, I think having like being having just having the skill to be able to put that aside and have some time off, so to speak, and then come back to it. I found that um, when I can do that and things are flowing well, it's I can then return to that kind of stuff with a much greater sense of flow and energy, yeah. and kind of just knock stuff out and get it done, and doesn't feel like the struggle or slog as much. Um, you know, I mean, it's an ongoing practice, but to be able to find some of that balance, like like just yesterday, I went for like this big hike all morning, you know, like drove up high, you know, no phone service and I'm just outside with my dog. And then when I came back, I just felt so much more clear and energized and like things that I had felt like so much resistance to felt a lot easier. So Mm -hmm. that's wonderful. I love that. And I think you, one of the other things that 
um, my clients lean into and myself is this concept of who are you when you're not a business owner? Who are you when you're not a mom? Who are you when you're not a therapist? That was a big one for me that I've been learning is that me as Hillary will always come first and I can only be as successful as a therapist and as a business owner if I'm tending to me. And so that's, that's a really interesting one too, is just who are you beyond all these roles? And there's a lot of freedom in that too, because so often, I mean, think about if um, you have a child or you have a spouse and you just, that's kind of your primary role is mom, wife, business owner, therapist, healer, whatever. And then who are you beyond that? And I think there's, there can be fear because so much of our identities is what we do, but then also it's like, Oh, I'm actually really soft. I actually have tenderness. I actually want to be able to go to the mountains with my dog and just disconnect and just really connect with the um, spirit and nature. And it, it can be really, really lovely and really wonderful to get to yeah. those those depths. <laughs> I just thought of one other thing I was going to share. Like when I went out yesterday morning with my dog, I intentionally like stopped, you know, and like sat by a creek. And because I think I noticed like even when like hiking, for example, it, it can be in this like go, go, go mentality, you know, how far, how fast, mm -hmm. like can I get up to this peak or whatever it is? And to be able to just put that on hold and like be out there. There's this whole phenomena that started in Japan called forest bathing where people just go out in the forest and basically just like lie there. You kind of do nothing for a little while. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, the idea is like, you're not like trying to get exercise or not trying to do anything particularly, you're just like being out there. And I think that can be so, so restorative. Yes. I love that. Just yeah. to be without any agenda, without any sort of goal in mind or any metric to check off, but just to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and I like too that you're you're helping teach people about running their business, but and you have business, you know, successful business experience yourself with real skills, you know, doing psychotherapy. There's this kind of joke that I've seen roll around Facebook, and because I know a lot of people in the coaching world, and he's like, you know, so people will like joke, oh, you're a coach who just teaches other people how to coach, but you've never, you know, had a job or like real life experience, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's refreshing to talk to someone who you know, you kind of put in your work, you went to graduate school, you're offering valuable skills that can really help people on a deep level, and then adding the business piece on top of it, you know? Yes. And, and sometimes too, I think that so much, so someone can come to me for a challenge and so I'm trained in psychotherapy and evidence, these evidence-based practices. And sometimes block some, sometimes someone can be blocked and they don't know why, but then we can use, we can use protocols with EMDR or with, we do brain spotting a lot here too. And then I, I think it's all related. So if you're feeling blocked at work or blocked with a performance issue in your job, there's usually something deeper. And in our world, it's, it's, it can be trauma or it can be energy that's stuck that just needs to be tended to. And then it's sort of like, if you do the kind of the deeper work and kind of face the difficulty, then it also resolves the, the performance issue or the business issue. So it's interesting. Sometimes people will come in 
having stress with work or stress with, with, um, I don't know, performing or, or stress in that level. And then we just go a little bit deeper and we do some of the therapies and we really go into some of the roots behind their stress. And then it's almost like you go deep to where the root is and then it solves kind of the surfacey thing. So it's just, yeah. it's just fun to, to do that too. That's great. You, and you mentioned, uh, do you want to share a little bit of like, what is brain spotting? <laughs> I don't know so much brain about spotting, that. Yes. So, so, so EM, EMDR, the eye movement desensitization reprocessing, that's one of, that's probably the standard trauma treatment and um, for working, well, one of the standards. And then brain spotting is a, a subtype of EMDR. So it uses the same, it uses very similar principles. It's, it's, its own method. And David Grand, he was the founder of brain spotting and he and Francis Shapiro, the MBR founder, they were kind of colleagues and coworkers and worked together in a lot of these things. So the brain spotting is very similar. The main difference. So with EMDR, you use eye movements to go back and forth or auditory tones or tactile tapping. Mm-hmm while the client is activated emotionally and with brain spotting you get the activation and there there's bilateral music that is the the bilateral sense so it's music and rather than the eye movements being bilateral you use a pointer like this and you have the client follow it with their eyes and you look for um, eye movements or facial expressions that show activation and then you you stop them at that point oh. so the memory is activated while the the music is playing and you kind of see you go very slowly and you go across their field division horizontally and also vertically and you find the spot because the theory is there's different um spots that are correlated to different memories and then the patient processes while at that spot. So maybe I always preface it by saying this treatment, you won't be looking at me while you're processing. And that's kind of wild for people because it's just a little bit awkward because you're not looking in the eyes. You look at this pointer and then I instruct you for what to do. And then you process while fixed at the pointer and then you do various different things with your eyes. So it's just a different type of modality, very similar. It's still a desensitization reprocessing, reprocessing trauma. And in, in our experience or in my experience, it can be a little gentler and I'm not trying to start a debate. I know that this is a like debate, um, among therapists, which one's better? And I think they're both really good, but I think the brain spotting can be gent- more gentle, especially with traumatic memories that involve some sort of shame or guilt or maybe complex trauma. Um, because sometimes the eye movements with EMGR can be overstimulating. And so I think different cases can require different treatments, but I like the brain spotting. It's very... Um, it's gentle and it feels very effective. So yeah, that was a great description. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trained in EMDR. So it's interesting to learn more about that. And yeah. Have you heard of brain spotting before? And I've looked into it a little bit, but I, that was a good description. And, um, I think it's, it's fascinating how the eyes, you know, obviously have this connection with our nervous system and our brain and just another, I mean, another example that is in, 
in meditation, like the way where you place your gaze is can be an important part of a practice. And mm-hmm. like a simple example is like if you're feeling really sleepy or tired, like look upwards. Or if you're feeling really agitated, look downwards. Oh, I and like just, that. Yeah, just doing that can help regulate. Um, Mm -hmm. that's wonderful and you'll start to notice it's interesting now that I say this you'll probably start to notice it a lot but if you have a client and they're talking about a memory watch their eyes because sometimes when they're talking about that memory they'll be talking and every time they talk about the memory they'll be looking this way and to me as a therapist that's a good indication okay when we brain spot that's probably their where we're going to stay but it's just interesting or they'll look up like this when they're talking about the specific memory but it's just it's so interesting or there's spots for resourcing so when someone's talking about being calm like you said with the meditation they might be looking this way or this way or up there or down there but it's just yeah. fascinating that is fascinating do you know have you are you familiar much with nlp neuro-linguistic programming i think they not not much i don't don't know too much about it what's what is your uh, affiliation with it Uh, i was just curious i don't i don't know a ton about it myself and i've i've read like mixed things about it from a more scientific objective you know point of view but i think they try to kind of re you know reprogram people's and they use like the eye movement in a similar way oh interesting maybe more maybe more in an active intentional way i don't know i should i should learn more but something like that that you can access your past, for example, by looking up, I think, up to the upper left, like things like that. Oh, no, I haven't heard about that. That sounds really interesting, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, another thing I wanted to ask you about is um, pleasure. And you mentioned, um, I think, before we started recording, but that trauma could block pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yes, I think that, um, yeah, I think we all desire we all desire pleasure, joy, vitality, richness, and sometimes different things can block that, trauma being one of them. I think so many things, gosh, um, underlying medical conditions, um, stress, anxiety, depression, um, but there's, I think that, yeah, we have pleasure centers, and I think a lot of a lot of times um, we, we all just as, as humans, we desire more pleasure in our lives, but it's hard to know how to get there mm. and th- there we, we can feel blocked. And so if someone comes to us and then this is how we um, work with them is, is and, and again, I, I think we know, we all know intuitively what we need in order to experience more pleasure. Maybe we need, to be working less or we need to take care of ourselves or we need to go to the gym or we need to prioritize date nights with our partners or whatever it is, we just don't do it. So it's just opening up and being, being honest and even asking the body. So, um, covering your eyes, um, setting a, maybe a, a time, um, to go inward and just ask your body, what do I need to be more connected with pleasure? Because, I mean, it's so interesting how often in the clinical space and as therapists, we focus on anxiety, depression, and managing those things. And, okay, let's let's, um, manage and control your central nervous system. Let's really talk about this anxiety. Let's process the trauma. Let's focus on the depression. And then it kind of stays there. But there's not a space to talk about, okay, what's on the other side of that? 
how can you use all of these clinical skills and this therapy to augment sources of pleasure and joy in your life? So once you've got the anxiety regulated, then what does it look like to to open up to experiencing more? Maybe it's better boundaries. Maybe it's uh, this is one of mine. I recently set a boundary to um, take my work email off my phone and not check it on the evenings and weekends. So what do I need in order to sink into the pleasure so that when I'm not working, I can really focus on my self-care, my activities, my physical fitness, my relationships, and those can really enrich me. So it's almost about, yes, it's good to kind of manage the, the depression, anxiety, stress, all that. And in doing so, how can that then translate into accessing deeper sources of pleasure because we all want that. I mean, wouldn't that be great if we were all just these pleasure-filled beings all the time? And that's not realistic, but if you can start to access that more, that becomes its own medicine and that becomes its own approach for managing the stress or the anxiety or the difficult situations. And so, and again, it looks different for everyone. So for some people, it might be setting the boundaries for some people, it might be setting the date night and actually getting a sitter, setting the date night and doing it, even though there's never enough time to be doing that. For some people, it's um, doing interpretive dance or hmm. really connecting with energies and movement and being expressive. And um, but really prioritizing and asking yourself and being honest because sometimes in order to experience this deepening of pleasure it takes doing something really hard hmm. um it takes maybe i need to work less hours i need to right, that could be really hard yeah. and that could be really hard or i this situation is draining or this this actually relationship or friendship isn't moving me forward maybe i need to reevaluate this or maybe i need to set a boundary and say no to certain things or maybe I need to say yes I'm a I'm a person I'm learning to set boundaries professionally and personally and that's mm. been hard but good and so it's not all rainbows and butterflies sometimes the thing you need to do is really hard for you or it's just yeah, yeah saying saying no to maybe some some social uh, events in order to say yes to I've got to get to the gym I've got to make a nice nourishing dinner I've got to just have introspective time it just it fluctuates based on the person based on the day but I think we know intuitively it's just learning how to listen and trusting the body and not feeling guilty about Great, taking time say, yeah. for self no, I love that. I think I think this is such a big, important topic to be able to feel pleasure and feel good about it. And you, you, like you just said, that we, I think many of us are conditioned as children to associate pleasure with guilt, right? And then we have to, yes, to unlearn it's that, that. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, and we kind of train ourselves or get trained to to work hard and do the things we need to do, and that's that's good, but not if it's coming at the expense of enjoying our lives and being able to feel pleasure. I mean, ideally, they can go together. Like you said, going to the gym can be pleasurable, and that's true. And that's kind of mm-hmm. maybe a little counterintuitive that, because it's it's something that might be challenging and, and difficult, but then the result is you feel better. Yes, yes. Or even getting up at the same time each day or going to bed at the same time each day. 
Yeah. I think it's great. And also this, just like you said, associating guilt with pleasure. Also this, I don't know where it comes from, but this pleasure is earned thing. It's like, Mm. oh, I get pleasure only when I do. And I used to do that too. Oh, I can really rest when I just kill it Mm. at work or when I just crush it. It's like, I think we we're worthy of pleasure just because not because of anything. It's like, we're worthy. And even if you haven't accomplished as much as you want to accomplish, you're still worthy of taking yourself out to dinner or going to the gym or having the glass of wine or not having the glass of wine or whatever it is. We're we're still worthy of it just because. Totally. Yeah. I agree. It's, it's interesting thing to think about. And um, I like how you're, kind of throwing out all these options. Like it could look so many different ways and any one of those options could be pleasurable or not in a given situation for a given person. Like there's, so there's not like some answer. It's, it's interesting for me to think about like something like it could feel really good to like lie in bed, for example, and, and relax. And that feels yes. pleasurable. But if I, if I did that for hours or a day or two days, I'm going to feel terrible, right? The pleasure is going to be gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, so it's like, kind of life is like that. Like any one given thing will feel good for a while, but obviously if you overdo it, it will lose that. And um, maybe that's where addiction can come in too. Like you're actually losing the ability to feel pleasure from something that, that used to give you pleasure. But Yes, I think moderation is great and, and asking what it is that you need for that day and how long? And I think intuitively we know it's something that we know. Mm. Yeah. It makes sense too, that you're bringing this in with the helping people with their businesses. Cause I think to make it sustainable and to actually even have greater success, we need to be able to feel pleasure and feel good about it. And like, you can't do the like long, hard slog forever, right? Maybe it works for a while. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so too. And I think the the opposite impact is burnout because if we don't do that then it leads to just crash and burn and then we get sick it leads to sickness and then we there you have to take days off to go to the doctor and just be sick and yeah it impacts immune immune systems so it's almost like it you kind of have to listen and you have to make room for it because the alternative is just being so stressed out and so just disconnected from self and that's not fun either totally yeah yeah well i'm aware of the time and um there's one other thing i was going to ask you about and it actually ties in with pleasure in an interesting way perhaps but that was uh psychedelic psychedelic assisted therapy um i know you work with ketamine do you want yes. to share a little bit about that? And I just said that thing about pleasure because I think we don't have to talk about this a lot, but I think part of the war on drugs and all that was like the suspicion or this guilt that if something makes you feel better, it must be wrong in some way. And I think as a society, mm-hmm. we're starting to question that and come to a new understanding, I, I hope. So. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I think that's that's great. And I, I do think the, the war on drugs is... Um, can be misinformed and I also think that I'm I'm really really excited about the path that ketamine is paving and that's one of the reasons I am so passionate about it because it shows us that yes this can happen within the context of FDA approval of medical necessity and then and then that paves the way for the FDMA and then the psilocybin and all these things that are in trials but 
Hmm. Yes. So I do think that it's so, it's so interesting because we talked about the cognitive behavioral therapy with the brains is here. And then we have the somatic is in the limbic system. And then to go even deeper, um, I, I think the psychedelic approaches can go even deeper for those who feel the calling to it. And the way that I work with it is a little bit different. So I work um, in a system with a psychiatric nurse practitioner who pre-screens the patients to get the therapy. And so it's, it's, it's not the first pass in the way that I do it. If someone needs ketamine for treatment-resistant depression, they probably need an um, infusion, which is something that I don't do. I do it for clients as an integrative approach to the care that they're already getting hmm. with me. And so I, yes, I think it, it's, it's great um, to augment and complement the work that we've already been doing. And you, because usually we can get really far with the traditional approaches and it's just, if you're looking for another, I don't know, to meet another edge or to go a little bit deeper, we can introduce this. And the thing that I love about the psychedelic approaches is it can, not always, but it can catalyze the healing process because of what happens neurochemically in the brain with the uh, pharmacological impact. So you get more regions of the brain talking to one another, Mm, um, which enables you to access different resources and problem solve differently and in the realm of of trauma or things that are difficult what it does is it reduces the fear response so a lot of times one of the things that can be prohibitive in making progress is you have this issue and then you have subsequent anxiety fear guilt shame around the issue so say say for example sexual trauma Hmm. or some something happened and there's embarrassment and there's shame the that prevents you from experiencing that or releasing that so what the the ketamine can do in that case is kind of reduce the fear response so that you can see that incident for what it is and allow the processing to happen because i think with trauma or with hardship there's processing that leads to resolution um at least in from my experience. And sometimes processing gets blocked because hypervigilance, hyperanxiety, fear response, paranoia, flashback, you get paralyzed in that. And so what the, the psychedelics can do is really gently and beautifully kind of uh, push pause on the panic button and allow you to kind of process in the way you need to process and even somatically um, allow the body to move how it needs to move within a really safe space. And I think it can enhance rapport between patient and client. I think it can um, lead to different insights and new insights that could take a little bit longer with traditional psychotherapy. Um, And it just kind of softens or it can soften that experience um, a little bit more in some cases. And so I think that, yes, what you said is interesting about the war on drugs. And I know it's a controversial topic right now. Um, And and it's also, I think it it does. The ketamine feels good because what happens is um, because it's a dissociative, dissociative anesthetic. And so for that period of time, you're kind of lifted 
from how you normally experience your trauma or your anxiety. So if you're always kind of tight and just on edge and your heart's racing and you're always kind of balled, balled up in your stomach, you kind of lift from that. So for that two hours of time, you experience, wow, what is my body like without holding this trauma in yes. my back, in my yeah. throat? Yeah. And, and that creates hope because it's like, whoa. And you gain new insights into things. You say, wow, I think that this, this tension in my back could be related to not being seen and not being heard by my caregiver in childhood. And, oh, if I really lean into that, it can actually ease some of that. So, hmm. so it does feel, I mean, good. There can be re relief from that. And I think that can be misconstrued, too, because it's sort of like, oh, is this an escapism thing? And yes in some cases it can but mm. I think when used appropriately and used up the doses that I because I, I keep dosing very low in the way that I work with it because I think if someone's going higher they need to go to an infusion site but I keep doses low so that the patient can actively engage in the psychotherapy process while also um, being in tune with what's going on somatically too yeah. so it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a lovely um, addition to the process as well yeah. Well, that was, I love how clearly you talked about that. And, um, yeah, there's a few, a few things there, but one is that, I mean, treatment resistant depression that ketamine has been shown to be really helpful with. I mean, it's extremely hard to treat. That's why it's called treatment resistant depression. Yes. It's a very serious thing. Right. And so, uh, it makes sense that that would require the infusion, like a larger amount and, and more care. Um, and then, yeah, I think what I mean it's just it's just a fact that some people unfortunately are stuck in you know an experience of life such that the anxiety or the depression or the the knot in the stomach that you talked about or the tension in the back or the the feeling that there's something wrong or whatever it is like it, it's it's that's their reality for so long that they can't imagine what it would be like to right. not have that and so something that could offer a window of conscious experience where they're experience, they're alive and they're experiencing life and they're talking with a therapist yes. that they have a trusted relationship with and they're not in that shit that they've been in for 20, 30, 40 years, you know, that. Yes. Yeah. And it creates hope. I mean, it creates hope because, and it goes into the ego dissolution piece by quieting the default mode network, which is where we develop our construct of self. So in the cases of anxiety or even depression, when you have all these thoughts, I'm so anxious, this will never get better. I'm not enough. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. And that gets ingrained into your being. The ketamine all of a sudden lifts you out of that. So you can see, whoa, this is my life without this constant narrative that I am a failure. I'm not enough. I, um, my client this morning, I'm a piece of shit. This will never get better. It's like, whoa, this and that gives hope. And I think what it also does because of the neurochemical impact of the psychedelics is it helps you to re-template and re-pattern that new narrative and that um, getting distance. So you can kind of starve the old narrative and re-pattern something new, something like I'm healing, I'm doing my best, I'm trying, I'm a human, things will get better. And so you have this added, it's almost like an added headwind than the traditional psychotherapy can give because of the heightened neuroplasticity that the, the pharmaceutical effect creates. And so 
it almost makes gives it more more kind of more bang for your buck um, when you add the the neuroplasticity with the fear extinction with the heightened rapport with the therapist with the active psychotherapy it's like that's why they say it's like you know having 10 therapy sessions in one with the psychedelics is because all this happens very quickly and you can kind of recalibrate because of all these regions of the brain that are working and so then the brain kind of resets and says whoa okay we can get rid of that old narrative that says i'm not enough and i'm a failure and we can have some hope to say wow oh, i'm learning i'm a human i'm doing my best and then to kind of go that way and then that becomes the new norm and then that becomes reinforced in subsequent and follow-up therapy sessions as well. So it's just, it's fun. And, and I, I love talking about ketamine, but sometimes I, there, there's like, it doesn't work for everyone. Hmm. It's not a magic bullet. And the way that, that I work with it is very, um, just very different. So um, yeah, it's not, it's not for everyone. And yeah. um, but for those who it is good for, it can be really, really, potent yeah potent powerful tool it's a good like tool in the toolbox and yes i think one thing you said um you know it could be an escape or you know it obviously can be potentially abused but doing it using it within the context of a therapeutic relationship to me makes obviously such a huge difference like it, if you're <laughs> if you're being a good therapist and being really with someone, you're not going to be letting them escape, so to speak. They're going to be actually doing the, the work that needs to be done there, the process, or which could include, right. again, experiencing pleasure. It doesn't mean you have to like always be looking at the difficult things. Right. That it's in yes. relationship with a human. You're not escaping from that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And even recognizing if you have the pull to want to escape, I think just noticing that, like, whoa, this right. because sometimes challenging things can come up. And our response is dissociation. We just disconnect. And so being able to stay and think like, wow, I can notice my own pattern coming up of just checking out, but I'm going to stay. And having the rapport with a therapist to say, yes, I'm with you. Let's stay and face this memory or this difficult emotion and be with it. That's incredible. It's incredible. And that just, I think, solidifies more of the trauma resolution, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was great. I think this will be really helpful for people. Um, do you have any last words to share with us? Yes. I wanted to say this, and I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought it up. So one of the other things that we teach and that I want to leave for all the, the listeners is... Um, I call it anchoring and using, I, we, I'm a big proponent of touch and hand to body and this um, technique that I teach a lot of clients when they are feeling overwhelmed by the moment, stress, anxiety, panic is to come back by hand, one hand on shoulder and one hand on your abdomen and kind of that helps anchor into the present moment. If, and if you can close your eyes and take some breaths. And even reminding yourself or reminding your body that you're here. I'm here. I see you. I'm with you. I'm in this. That can be something that's really uh, empowering. It's, it's called a grounding technique. But it's, um, it does, I think, one of two things. One, it can 
um, prevent or lessen the dissociative response. The dissociation is one of the things that uh, makes panic, anxiety, and, and PTSD so scary is we just kind of check out when the negative emotions come or we just get pulled into them. So it can really help to anchor and ground and come back. And then it, I think it also provides nurturing. So the body nurturing piece where you can say, hey, I'm here and I'm with you and just say positive affirmations that you're needing most in that moment. Um, whatever your body needs in order to feel safe or feel empowered. And that can differ from person to person, but just being able to connect because I think we can label it all differently, anxiety, depression, PTSD, but I think it all comes down to a disconnection from self because you're, you leave yourself and you feed those depressive thoughts. So enhancing the intimacy and connection with self is is I think the goal and something that leads to the symptom resolution, the relief, and then the pleasure as well. So I hope that, um, I think that everybody should try it. It's great. And it leads to a lot of relief for a lot of our clients. So I love how you said connection with the self. Yes. And that some of the negative self comes from when you leave yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That really struck me. Yeah. And even with addiction, I mean, I'm not an addiction professional, but you leave yourself and you go to the addiction, addictive behavior. And I think it happens with panic, with anxiety, with flashbacks, with dissociation, you just leave yourself or if you engage in unhealthy behaviors. And I think healing comes when you come back and that can look different. It doesn't have to look perfect, but when you come back and you say, Hey, why did I want to leave? What part of me was not being tended to or nurtured or seen or loved or held? And how can I Hmm. hold self and connect? And it's really beautiful when we're able to kind of see that and do something different. We can, we come back to ourselves. Come back to yourself. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. This was so much fun. I just love talking to you and I'm so glad I got to get to know you a little bit more too. Yeah. Thank you.